0: Welcome to Promiscuous Listening, where we take a cue from John Milton's 1644 tract, Areopagitica, and its promotion of reading promiscuously to learn from the diversity of voices in 21st century Milton studies. My name is Marissa Greenberg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my conversations with scholars about the works of John Milton and especially his epic poem, Paradise Lost. So, today we are very happy to have Paul Bardunius come and join us to talk about book six of Paradise Lost and to share his expertise on the history of warfare. Uh, Paul, would you mind
1: introducing yourself? Okay, I am actually an entomologist. I study termites and how termites come together in big groups and build things. But part of that study has been looking at how big groups of men on battlefields come together to uh, form different tactical units without having any central planning involved. And that has led me off on a tangent into all sorts of uh, elements of ancient Greek warfare. Um, Currently, I am a research scientist at the Department of Mechanical Engineering. It's the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. And I also have a position at Florida Atlantic University, where I teach. Um, And along with all my termite work, I write books about ancient Greece and articles about ancient Greek warfare.
0: And in the interest of full disclosure, we should also note (laughs) that you are my brother-in-law. And And in fact, your (laughs) brother-in-law. And that we discovered Uh, This overlapping interest when I started working on Book Six of Paradise Lost, and in particular, the martial bodies in this part of the epic. And you have been incredibly helpful in helping me to understand what the heck is going on. And so we're now going to share some of that knowledge
1: with others. Yes, the book was written at a very interesting time in the history of military science, but a lot of change was going on. And I think you can see some of that working its way into the book.
0: So maybe that's a good place to start. What what kind of changes do we see going on in 17th century Europe around
1: the science of warfare? So the biggest change throughout the medieval period, um, most warfare was conducted with large groups of men with spears, mostly, and then the killing arm was actually heavy cavalry running around, uh, which prompted, of course, the men to get big spears. This evolved into the famous Swiss pikemen who had very long spears and were able to keep heavy cavalry at bay, and this, in turn, came to its sort of peak in the Spanish system under what were called the uh, tercios, and they are uh, groups of three thousand pikemen, mixed with a smattering of musketeers, to um, you know be able to fire on on oncoming horsemen and keep them at bay. But in for most of the early period of this the centuries we're looking at here, uh, the tercios were about three thousand pikemen and only about thirty to hundred um, musketeers. So mostly pikemen, few. Musketeers. And that was actually changing because, in order to match the strength of these Spanish tercios during the 80 Years' War in um, the Low Countries, uh, Maurice of Nassau put together a system where he, instead of having these giant blocks of pikemen, came up with smaller groups called battalions, which were only around 550 men who uh, were. Uh, in that group made up of only about 250 pikemen and about 300 musketeers and the switch from pikemen to musketeers is what is really driving the evolution of uh, military tactics at this time and part of that and i know this is something that that you keyed in on part of that is if you're going to use musketeers musketeers have a very sort of awkward system that they fight with it's a it's a gun that has to be loaded through the barrel of the gun with black powder which is a, itself explosive obviously and at the time the only way they could get these guns to shoot was you know in an inexpensive way was to have a, a literally a lit match that they held in their hands so it was essentially a rope that was on fire and they would affix this to the gun and just as it was about to fire, they would just touch this down into a little pan of gunpowder, and that would cause the main charge inside to blow up and launch the bullet out of the musket. But as you might imagine, if you have something like you know three hundred men all carrying lit matches in their hands and explosive powder all over their bodies because of course they had to carry the, the ammunition on their bodies, so they did so in what looked like little little tiny like coke bottles that hung on their um, hung from a strap around their bodies. You know, these guys they literally could blow up if things went wrong. So it was, a, it was a really intricate dance that they had to do in order to load these guns, but also move up to the front to fire the guns and then move away from the front to reload the guns. And in order to make this efficient, they had to do it in a rotation where men would move up to the front and shoot and then move back. It's called counter-marching, counter-march back the back of the line, and then they had time to reload their gun again before they got back to the front to shoot. So making the use of musketeers efficient led to this very complex drill that was even more complex than the drill you needed for the pikemen. Now, pikemen needed a little bit of drill as well because, obviously, you're you're walking around with these pikes, and a pike is a spear that's up to 20 feet long. So they had to be able to coordinate their movement so as not to just tangle each other up. So there was already a drill for pikemen, but the drill for pikemen was simple compared to the drill for musketeers.
0: Now, thank you for that explanation and it might be interesting for students to know that the techniques that Nassau developed were then put down in print. They were described and they were illustrated, and that book made the rounds of 17th century Europe and was crucial during the English civil wars for large groups of men to essentially learn what to do on the battlefield.
1: And you're Um, referring to the the book by uh, Jacob de Geyne? yes. Yes. Yes, and uh, the pedestrian name of weapon handling of calibers, muskets, and pikes. I, I, I like the title. Yes,
0: uh, I mean, and the illustrations are, are magnificent, um, and it, I think it leads to kind of two questions that that I, I'd like to take in turn. The first is, well, how well can someone learn how to fight from a book, uh, because. The idea that these musketeers, as well as their leaders, were learning from this book wasn't novel. Uh, Men throughout Europe had been learning how to sword fight uh, and and duel from books for a long period of time. And the second question uh, that I'd like to get to is, what does this have to do with Paradise Lost in which we don't actually have any guns? So let's, let's talk about the first. How easy or hard is it to learn these modes of combat from a book?
1: So when you look at these uh, really just beautiful plates in these books, you'll have, for instance, in in his book, uh, he has 43 commands that are illustrated to load a musket. So 43 steps to go through every time you load a musket. And the way he does this is he shows you a still image of a man in the midst of whatever that action is. But one of the things that you'll see, and this goes back to um, really most of the military books like this, where it's a a treatise that is teaching you military movements, is you are expected to understand the transitions between movements. So I'll give you an example. There's a a famous book by a fellow named Fiore de Liberi, who in the 14th century was an instructor of longsword fighting. And... I know this – I'm familiar with this because I know a lot of people who are trying to reconstruct the, um, the warfare from the plates of his book. And you either have to have been shown how to do this, which is many, of course, people went to uh, – many people went to uh, instructors. Or you had to – you have to sit there and do it yourself to figure out how to flow between motions. And there's still discussion amongst the modern, which is exactly how to do that. So uh, he'll show, for instance, in his book, uh, The Flower of Battle, he'll show what are called poste, which are a picture of a guy with a sword held over his head. And then the next picture will be a poste of a guy who's holding a sword in front of his chest. And you have to figure out that the moves that went between that. And sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's a little, little complicated. So when you're saying, how did they learn from the books? The trick is if the book has a lot of pictures, which this one does 43 commands, a little musket, it makes it a lot easier. Um, in this sense too, I, you don't, you don't see in the, in these works sort of the um, attempt to sort of keep hidden secrets the way you do, I think in some of the earlier mm. books on uh, how to use weapons in battle. This is so detailed that they're, they're trying to show you in the book exactly what to do. So, If you were a commander, you could pick up this book, you could take your men out into the field, and you could have them go through all of these 40 commands. It gives you the words to use for all of these 40 commands. And um, you would just have them transition through. Now, they're going to be highly motivated because, again, they're holding a flaming match (laughs) and an explosive gun in their hand. So this is something that it was so important to get right that um, it had to be detailed. And And I think you obviously would do this You'd go through this many times before you actually had loaded weapons. You'd have to make sure the men were very proficient at it. Right. And part of this, too, is that they had to do it very fast and very well because that rotation of men, you can imagine if I have – early on, it was like 10 ranks of, of musketeers. By the time the first guy shoots and gets back to the back of the line, he has to be reloaded by the time he finds himself back in the front again. So he has to have gone through that whole cycle. And the faster you can go through that cycle and load yourself, the more actual bullets your army is putting out. So if you are, and this was another major advance during the the century, if you are uh, a soldier of, let's say, uh, Gustavus Adolphus, and you're very highly trained to be able to load your guns fast, and he actually changed the form of the guns to make them faster to load, you can effectively put out a higher volume of bullets per time with lower numbers of men. So you could face a larger army with a smaller army and face them equally or be superior. So as you were
0: speaking, I had a couple thoughts. One of them is there's an interesting correspondence between these books, these manuals to fighting and Milton's own descriptions of the battle to the extent that He provides a lot of detail, a lot of imagery, but the reader has to, in many moments, transition between them imaginatively.
1: Mm -hmm. And you
0: can go back and read and reread stanzas just as one would practice choreography on uh, the training field again and again, and working out those transitions. What is the most elegant? What is the most efficient? What is going to bring the greatest success? I think there is a certain
1: figurative correlation there. And it's interesting, too, because modern modern authors, of course, nowadays, particularly write cinematically. Right. So a modern author is seeing a movie play in his head. It's interesting to note that, that he may, in fact, be looking at his descriptions as though they were panels.
0: And in Paradise Lost, we do see Milton describing some kinds of choreography in particular when he's describing phalanxes and hollow cubes and the like. But his characters aren't carrying muskets. They are, however, carrying spears and swords and shields. They're uh, not so much cavalry, even though there are chariots, Hmm. um, which would suggest a more classical point of comparison. What might we benefit then from thinking about Renaissance military technology for a poem that while written in the renaissance is also really deeply informed by ancient epic and its modes of fighting.
1: Well I think one of the things we see in this period as well is a harkening back to the um ancient Roman and Greek texts the uh, text for instance of like Vegetius um who wrote uh, De Re Militari, which is a 4th century text on L- Roman tactics. Uh, Frontinus was very popular as well. He wrote a, a book called Strategemata which was literally just a putting together of stories of different uh, you know, things that different famous people did in war. And these were very, very popular. So we see these, for instance, uh, in an earlier period. This is, of course, going to inform Machiavelli's work on De Arte de Guerra. And actually, it is an English connection, oddly enough, because it goes back to a fellow who I'm not very familiar with, named John of Salisbury, who wrote a book called, it was called uh, Poliocraticus. Um, and he was one of the first to bring these into sort of the the uh, area of warfare like this, to go back to the English, uh, to take the English, but go back for the uh, Roman and Greek um, uh, tactica and bring them up. Um, so so these things were were kicked around, but they became really popular, I think, as we see Maurice, for instance, who is trying to take a small nation of very motivated soldiers and put them up against you know, huge numbers of pikemen. Hmm. The natural you know, um, analogy for that is when we had the Romans who were um, motivated soldiers fighting these huge Eastern um, Macedonian uh, pike phalanxes. And in fact, many of the things he does, he takes directly from uh, Regisius, from the Roman uh, standard. So if he killed the Romans specifically set their men up in three lines. And he specifically sets his men up in three lines. It's limited because, as I said, the majority of the um, forces pushing the warfare at this time were the need to make the muskets efficient. So there is a, a limit because it's different than the Romans in that sense. But a lot of the other uh, sort of pieces of the puzzle for these tactics he was lifting directly from the ancient sources because of that, I think for many literate people, the ancient sources would have been essentially current again because you would have you 'd have seen in your own warfare what it was like to have these ancient battles. so if you were going to draw back to a biblical story or an ancient roman story you could you could sort of house it in your contemporary context. You, you would have been in a battle with that many people in three lines, right? This kind of thing I think was current still. Uh, one of the things that we see that's interesting here is because often when, you, when you're doing artwork, you will see um, the subject of the artwork would be ancient, but the um, armor and the weapons and all would be contemporary. So medieval knights you know, show up all over the place, fighting like, you know, uh, in illustrated stories of the Bible, for instance, but this is almost the reverse. This is, you're taking a, a story that is essentially, um, an ancient story, but it's also a universal story. And instead of, instead of giving us contemporary elements, he mostly gives us ancient elements, but then he throws in the canon. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah,
0: so right. The, I I like the way you couch that in terms of art that is suspending over uh, a, a very large tract of time, because for Milton, when he presents the war in heaven, he does a couple really interesting things. One is he prefaces it, his storyteller within the epic, Raphael, is very forthright about, hey, this war in heaven, you will not understand it, Adam and Eve or later audiences, so I have to translate it into terms that you can understand. So he's already accommodating his audience's own temporal moment and their uh, their knowledge, both literary and historical. And then Milton breaks up the war in heaven into three days, and the first day is very classical. And we can—I'd um, love to take a couple moments and look at some of the one-on-one combat there. Um, but then the second day brings us into the early modern, as you noted, with these cannons. And then the day three just completely eludes human history by going into the book of Revelation and bringing the sun in on the chariot that drives the rebel angels into hell. So Milton is really being very sophisticated in his juxtaposition of different kinds of knowledge, classical, contemporary, and Christian. Um, Maybe then we could look at one of those passages in on day one, that's one on one combat, uh, where it seems just so deeply invested in Homeric and Virgilian epic sequences of, of battle, but may also have some of this early modern choreography that you've been describing. Does that sound okay? Yeah, you're thinking of uh, Abdiel's? Yeah, I. You know that I love that moment with Abdiel. It's so succinct. Um, so this is for the students. This is book six, line 189, and this is after Satan and Abdiel have been going back and forth about what. What does service mean? Is, is service freely given or is it a kind of enslavement? And Abdiel responding after verbally bl- giving a blow to Satan matches the physical blow with a verbal one or rather matches the verbal blow with a physical one. So saying, a noble stroke he lifted high, which hung not, but so swift with tempest fell on the proud crest of Satan, that no sight nor motion of swift thought, less could his shield such ruin intercept. Ten paces huge, he back recoiled, the tenth unbended knee his massy spear Upstayed, as if on earth winds underground or waters forcing way sidelong had pushed a mountain from his seat, half sunk with all his pines. So, what, what do you, when I read that, what do you, with your experience uh, of martial history, what do you see?
1: So this, this section, this is actually why we started discussing this, because this section is very similar to uh, what I would see in uh, combat, let's say, between two hoplites, ancient Greek hoplites, who, who use sword, I mean, uh, spear and shield. And in this case, I believe that Abdiel is using a spear. And um, what we see is that the weapon is raised high. Has to be raised high because you know for a spear you have to rear back and, and rip you know, raise it up very high, and then he 's struck very fast there's no there 's no um, you know, moment of tension where the spear is held up in the air and, or threatening or anything He really is swift he 's very swiftly hitting Satan when he hits satan what 's interesting is that Satan has no time to try to block with his shield, and then what 's interesting is he 's pushed backwards and that 's something. That I always thought was a little interesting in this passage because he's not knocked to the ground. He could have been knocked prostrate, right? Mm-hmm. But he's not. He's knocked backwards, and you can almost see this as I, in my head when I read this. I think of it as almost like Japanese anime where where he's <laughs> pushed back and there's a you know a, a, a channel dug through the earth as he goes backwards. And you know when you're hitting someone with a spear, the blow is linear. So you're you're doing mm-hmm. that. You're hitting somebody back. You're not hitting somebody down. And of course my favorite part of this, because I was raised Catholic is that at the end he is knocked on bended knee and he is essentially in the position of genuflection. And although he has now just destroyed all of the earth around him as he's pushed back, he is humbled. His spear is upstayed, which I assume is held up, but not in a threatening position. And he's down on one knee with his head bent. Mm.
0: Yeah. He, he, the It's almost as if the, Martial blow forces him into that position of servitude that he refuses to perform.
1: Yes, uh, yes, definitely, and it, it is, and it is a very particular position, I think, to Christians uh, who yes. would have done this in front of the host at services. So this is this is a very particular position that he finds himself in. Absolutely. And also, it's interesting, too, because when you hit with a spear like this, it's, it's more than just a physical blow. Remember, he can't really hurt Satan. They, they, Michael cuts him in half, and he pops back up again. <laughs> but it's interesting that, that it's, a, it's, you know, literally a smiting, right? He is, he's hitting him with this thing, almost like a branding, right? He hits him, mm. and it, it, the, the effect of his stroke is to force him back, but also to force him down into this genuflection
0: Let's, let's look at another moment. If, if we might, um, you know, you mentioned Michael cutting through, uh, Satan. So that the sword of Michael from the armory of God was given him tempered. So that neither keen nor solid might resist that edge. It met the sword of Satan with steep force to smite descending, and in half cut sheer, nor stayed, but with swift wheel reverse, deep entering shared all his right side. Then Satan first knew. Pain And writhed him to and fro convolved. So sore the grinding sword with discontinuous wound passed through him, but the ethereal substance closed, not long divisible, and from the gash a stream of nectarous humor issuing, issuing flowed sanguine, such as celestial spirits may bleed, and all his armor stained air
1: while so bright." So let's first discuss what the blow is doing, like the physicality of it. So this, this sword blow is coming from above. It's coming from the right shoulder of Michael. It's coming down to literally split Satan in half. And as it's splitting his torso in half, it finishes with essentially a twist and a flourish that twists the blade laterally out Satan's right side. So you can imagine the stroke looks something like an L. It enters his body and then leaves through the right side of his body. So it's, it's a pretty horrible and horrifying wound. Um, it's interesting that he has this description of this horrifying, horrifying wound only to have it heal almost mm. immediately, right? So it, it doesn't really do anything, but it is horrifying and it does leave the stains of viscous blood all over his armor.
0: Is there an analogous moment to your recollection in? Classical epic to this kind of utterly devastating wound. So Homer
1: loved these things. <laughs> he did. Now I can't give you the exact uh, quote, but there are there are so many times that a massy spear cleaves somebody's palate and out the back of his head, or you know. Transfixes the body. Now the, the difference is, of course, that Homer is generally describing spear wounds, so you don't get that same sort of chopped in half thing. But um, you do get lots of horrible, horrible piercings. <laughs> Things like stabs through the face, like I said, stabs through the eye, uh, stabs to the genitals, another big fun one. So that anything that's both, you know, damaging and also humiliating, it also uh, shows up. So in a sense, this is a little bit of both, right? This, this really is more about humiliation than about actual damage because he's going to immediately heal.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Um, there is, a, again, yeah, this effect of humbling Satan because he realizes that he is not invulnerable, uh, and in that right. way is decidedly inferior to Milton's omnipotent God. Uh, But there's also, I think, another interesting comparison that your description of Homer's love for this kind of poetic gore um, makes me think about. And that is in Homeric epic, the gods love to see battle for the pleasure of watching humans I mean, mash on one another, right? Um, there's also this sense that the, even the gods must adhere to fate. There is an outcome, and whatever the gods do to interfere in human warfare is in the service of this outcome. And and Milton messes with that because his god doesn't seem to take pleasure in the violence per se, but he is definitely using it to send a message. Um, he's sending the yeah, he message. He definitely
1: allows it, right? So he, yes. he can stop it when he wants. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, and, and uh, you know, part of the message is definitely to humble Satan, to to show Satan the truth that he keeps denying. But there's also something for his own loyal angels uh, to say, you need me as much as they need me, uh, which, which is a, which is different from the classical and, and leads then to that third day where the sun comes in on the chariot
1: with all of divine glory. That is interesting in the context of the cannons, Mm. because when you look at what the cannons do, they can't actually hurt anybody. But what they do is they make a mockery of the angels, right? Mm. When they, when they shoot, the angels are bowled over and, uh, they're essentially laughed at. And, you know, God lets that happen. What then do you make of the loyal angel's
0: response, not by modern warfare,
1: but rather by taking
0: hills and mountains and throwing them back at Satan? On
1: the one hand, you say, well, of course, you know, it's analogous to men throwing, you know, rocks or something off the top of a fortress, which would have been a common Mm -hmm. tactic. But what's interesting to me is that the thing that actually makes God step in is that they're making a mess of the earth. Mm. And it's really the angels that start doing that. So I don't know, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but essentially it's, all, it's almost petulant of the angels to start to destroy God's creation because he allowed them to get pulled over and made fun of.
0: This moment when the loyal angels – well, bo- bo- all of day two – one way in which it's been read is a critique of the destructive nature of warfare that Milton is in on day two when he brings the action from this neoclassical one-on-one combat to uh, this collective, highly destructive warfare that uses the technology of the 17th century. One way that's been read is, is his Lament of the destruction of the English Civil Wars on the English homeland, on the soil itself. This m- brings us to, to something that, I, that uh, I'll, I'll admit I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about. Elsewhere in his career, Milton writes a series of sonnets on and to military leaders during the English Civil Wars. He writes one to Oliver Cromwell one to Thomas Fairfax and another um, to a guy whose last name is Vane. And these were all men leading both on and off the battlefield. And I'm just wondering what your sense of what made an effective military leader during this moment in history, how much of it is being gleaned from classical sources? How much is coming out of this new science of warfare? What made a good leader at this time?
1: Well, I think in this period, you have sort of a wellspring of uh, experience in the wars over in Europe. So you have someone like Prince Rupert who comes back hmm. and, you know, he is for the uh, the royalists. He, is, he comes back and he has experience with all of this new type of warfare that they're doing and of course the parliamentarians are are using it as well but actually they never use it quite the same way so there there are certain elements to cavalry drill and things like this that um they never quite get the same as the the royalists who really brought over the drill from the mainland so part of it is this this experience that the men brought back and of course during the war that experience comes quick and hard Mm. and then also you know you have to be Somewhat, you know, um, personally hardened. You have to have the ability to withstand the kind of horrifying blood that we're seeing when Satan gets chopped in half. You have to be able. You have to be willing, almost like God, to put your own men at risk of life and limb for victory. I mean, that's one of the one of the biggest problems of any leader is that you have to be willing to kill your own men to win. And. Hmm. So that attitude of being sort of above the fray is something that in this period we would see um, much more than, for instance, in my period in ancient Greece where the generals were in with the men fighting in the units. Mm-hmm. Here the generals are standing back and the battles playing out before them really much more like what we're seeing play out in heaven, mm-hmm. whereas in the ancient combats um, – with the romans already you had the general removed from battle but throughout the greek stuff and definitely into the the homeric um stuff as well these guys the leaders are right there in combat in homer the leaders are the ones doing most of the combat in terms of what we're actually told happened of course we don't hear about the you know the peons running around killing each other
0: <laughs> yeah i mean so I, <laughs> yeah i mean milton definitely does give his the leaders in heaven michael and i think it's um zuriel you know they definitely have a particular role, but you're right that the general God is literally above the action, and right. then is the deciding is the deciding factor as well. Um, one other thing that uh, that came to me while while you were just describing that as the the you know, this difference between the vast majority of both leaders and fighters in the English Civil Wars and in ancient Greece. And I think this also goes back to the way you were describing learning how to fight from a book is there's only so much you can learn from a book, however well illustrated. At a certain point, you have to go out and actually experience the thing. And sometimes you had an opportunity to rehearse right? Um, Let me practice with my gun without the flaming brand. (laughs) Um, And let's practice these steps before we can blow one another up. But then you get to the battlefield and have a different kind of experience that cannot be prepared for no matter how much you read. Um, And I I think there might also be a Reflective moment here for Milton, where his Raphael is telling Adam and Eve this story as a way to prepare them to resist temptation, knowing the consequences. And that's all well and good, but a story can only do so much. Lived experience has to right. fill in the gaps
1: between what we are told. Well, it's, it's the famous modern philosopher, Mike Tyson, who said that everybody has, a plan, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. What we're saying is you can have gone through all of this drill, and I can train you to move through these lines perfectly, and you can load real fast, but there, are, there is a huge number of sayings in the English lexicon for screwing things up that have to do with loading your musket incorrectly. Hmm. So we say things like, he shot his wad. We say something, is a flash in the pan. Um, there's so many different things like this that are, are, what happens if you screw up the loading process of a musket? Shoot that yourself is in the foot. It was not very, exactly. It was not very easy to do under the conditions of an actual battlefield. Hmm. <laughs> So I agree completely. Once the, the training, of course, was something that was necessary. You couldn't even show up on the field with a musket if you didn't know how to load it. But taking that next step and being able to do that in action—that's a whole different story. And then one of the other problems, of course, is actually shooting someone, because even into the modern era, you probably have heard this story that when they were training men for—I believe it was World War One—they had trained them on round targets, and the men were not hitting human-shaped silhouettes because they were, you know, averse to shooting actual humans. Mm. So they went and trained them on human-shaped silhouettes, and they were much more likely to kill people. Mm. And all that the probably more- says something about Fortnite and my children, but I uh, <laughs> will leave that
0: for now. But, you know, all the more so in, in the context of a civil conflict, which is both what Milton is portraying, right, angels against right? angels, and in his lived experience, even though Milton did not fight – In the war uh, on the battlefield itself, he was a very active participant in the uh, government and and a a certain kind of paper warfare that he was extraordinarily good at. Um, But that, too, is a civil war of brothers fighting brothers and fathers and families being torn apart that makes this kind of warfare all the more horrid. Um, and I think you're right, going back to the description of Michael cutting Satan, that Milton goes to considerable lengths to uh, communicate the horrors of this kind of battle, even as he is participating in a certain tradition of glorifying heroism and glorifying skill. He's-
1: he has a problem because mm. he has to convey some sort of horror of battle when we already know that no matter what happens to the combatants they're fine mm. and you know he's doing this to a people who surely had men all over the place with their legs chopped off and arms and eyes missing right so the horror of battle for him he has to almost overemphasize these wounds have to be unbelievably grievous in order to even make an impression, right? Mm. If he had just, you know, stabbed him in the chest and pulled the blood out and it, and it healed like a vampire movie, right? It would have been, okay, big deal, you know? So at least this gives you the, the, the damage. And then I think it's interesting that it leaves its mark on his armor. I think that's really important because everything does heal, but the sign that it happened, <laughs> the, the horrible, viscous blood all over him doesn't go away, mm.
0: Yeah, the, the idea of permanent marks of right, right. sin and shame that we have throughout the, the Christian tradition, and not just the Christian tradition, but that, that's, and that Milton will return to, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler for the students, but <laughs> will do so again in book 10 after the fall, and all the participants in the fall of Adam and Eve are marked yet again. Well, th- this is as you know. As you know, I love talking about this stuff, and I love talking with you about this stuff. Um, was there anything that you wanted to point out, either about the context or about the text, that we didn't touch on? Not really.
1: Um, I don't know. So, here's something that I was thinking about. We were just talking about moving in, in groups, and when I was writing my book on uh, hoplites, ancient Greek warfare one of the things that was common is all sorts of dances that men did. They mm. they danced together as part of their training. And it turns out there's a whole field looking at what's called muscular bonding or um, interpersonal entrainment, it's called. And this is what happens when you get yourself into a large group of people doing either a group dance or drill. And it essentially... It's, it causes a euphoria. I mean, this is something that was, that's that been considered as one of the advantages of um, human groups in our evolution, something that made our human groups tighter is that we danced together around foreign, uh, uh, bonfires and stuff back when we were barely human. And this this concept of this group behavior is something that would have been really important in all of these different drill scenarios that we're talking about. So if he and as I recall, he was, he lived next to a drill field, didn't he? Yes. He, so he he's sort of seen this happening all the time, right? So this 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 phenomenon—if you've ever seen men uh, or a marching band or something drill, there's something there's something um, sort of uh, enticing about this whole thing. people are moving into a drill, and they're moving as one. They're moving in step, that sort of thing. So it's possible that this too. Especially when he's talking in his uh descriptions of the large groups of, of uh angels moving around. This is something that he's he's thinking of as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how often how much group dancing the English did. So I can't say if that was something but, that would have fed into it as well.
0: I mean, they but, absolutely did and Milton would have known about that as well. Um there were, at the same time as there are all these manuals for fighting, there are all these manuals for dancing, both human dancing and equestrian ballet. Oh, wow. um, yeah, So, and with some similar kind of illustrations to ske- – especially schematics to show this is how you move your feet and how groups of people move. Um, so that's
1: very interesting because now you have a situation where you have parallels between the drill manuals and the dancing manuals. I, yeah, absolutely. By the way, as an aside, I always tell everybody who asks me about how hard it is to learn drill mm-hmm. that if, if I were – at a like a cattle call audition for actual dancers, I could teach them everything that a drill master needed to teach somebody in about 15 minutes, <laughs> just because they know exactly how to do everything, right? Mm. So people who are trained in dancing could could easily learn drill, and people who are drill, trained in drill probably have a better um, ability to dance. That's interesting.
0: Uh, I'm gonna have to give that more thought, especially given Milton's obsession with music and the ways in which musical measures and dance measures or dance steps work their way uh, throughout his his writing. Um, well, thank you again so very much, Paul, for sharing your expertise and uh, yeah, that's what I've got. Thank you. <laughs>
1: thank you very much.